Get ready for a week-long celebration of music, community and fabulous fun with Joy Radiothon 2024. Joy has the largest collection of rainbow podcast content in the world and you can help keep us out loud and proud by donating during Joy Radiothon 2024. Just go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. Mark it in your calendars because Joy Radiothon returns June 1st to 7th and remember, we all flourish with joy. This program contains themes of an adult nature. Word for Word is an in-depth look into the lives of real people, which means this episode may contain explicit accounts of real-life events, including alcohol and drug use. The language used at times may cause some offence, but has been left uncensored due to the accuracy of the story. No offence is intended, and we hope you enjoy the program. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, to over 70 community stations around the nation, this is Word for Word. Coming to you from Australia's LGBTI radio station, Joy. Welcome, family and friends, fans and fiends, to today's edition of Word for Word. I want to thank you for tuning in today. I am Benjamin Norris, and it's simply a delight to continue to work on this show for the Joy Network, which has already featured some of the community's strongest voices. In the tradition of this ongoing program, I continue to look at powerful stories and insights into the life and lifestyle of some incredible people. Each week we will chat with those in and around our community who have inspired us, entertained us, but mostly they've made an impact on the queer community of Australia. Today's guest is one of them. This man was born in rural Australia, and while his passion for farmland is evident in the very way we relate to him, it was his soiree on reality television that made him a household name. First appearing on Australian TV, we got to know this gay man when he entered the Big Brother house in 2006. He then continued to make a splash on Dancing with the Stars, proving his popularity with the LGBTI and wider audience. However, it was his passion for dogs and his love of the land that has taken him on the road, touring the country with dog shows that has proven his popularity is near and far. While his big heart and open hand has been evident to most, his story has always been unique with a sense of mystery as to who he really is, beyond being a gay farmer with model good looks. I'd like to welcome you, and I'd like to welcome David Graham, otherwise known as Farmer Dave, to Word for Word. I think in my travels around the world, I had more in common with Mongolian nomads than I do with people in my own country. And David's childhood was tough. It was really a case of not knowing that there was a world beyond my world. I think David always felt that he was never going to achieve anything like his father or never get his father's approval. I didn't think that I was gay at all. Was that as I matured, that admiration of men that was inside me turned more and more to actual attraction. This is Big Brother. But now you're looking for a life partner. Would you say that you're going into the house as a search for love? It's time to go, David. No, David Graham desperately wanted to get out of the Big Brother house, but you, the audience, kept voting him in. Good morning to the dancing farmer, David Graham. Because we all feel things. I mean, at, at the heart, we all humans are tribalist. Can you tell me where the nickname Farmer Dave came from? Oh, well, to be totally honest with you, I used to be called Country Dave. And back in the days of Nokia 5110s, when you shorten things, it doesn't shorten down so well. So I was glad when people started calling me Farmer Dave. Right. But yeah, usually you, I used to be Country Dave. And yeah, I'll leave that to your own thoughts and imaginations, what I'd be in people's phones as. 
sorry, are you talking about Grinder and... No, just my normal mates, like, you know... So my- you were Country Dave in everyone's phones? Of course, yeah, yeah. Country Dave, and then as I became, like, full-on an actual farmer in my own right, I wasn't just working on my dad's farm, and I was farming completely, yeah, then everyone just started calling me Farmer Dave. Do you think in some way that you get fetishised? Do you know how, like, some people get fetishised? Do you think because you're a farmer and, like, you're not really bad to look at, I'm just going to say this right now, but do you get fetishised because of that? That ship has sailed. Do I get fed? No, not at all. No, and um, no, definitely not. And, like, I try try those apps, but 99% of the time (sighs) I get weird messages back and... uh, so you just give up for a few years and I'll try again and you get weird messages back. You know, people people assume that, I don't know, because you are you do a bit of TV work and you do a bit of this and you do a bit of that, you would not need to use those apps when I'm the exact candidate that needs to use those apps because, you know, I live a life where I'm not around other humans at all. You need those apps more than anyone. Yeah, totally, totally. So, Although I have to say this to you, so Andy Cohen, who is a TV presenter in America and is really well known, he's a gay man and he's in his 40s and they were asking him the other day and he definitely uses apps even though he has that level of notoriety because he said a man's got to eat. At the end of the day, regardless of your yeah. circumstance, yeah. you still have the same needs as everybody else. Well, yeah, and, you know, I'm usually nowhere near anyone that I can meet anyone in the normal ways just because that's my, my lifestyle that I, I lead. So it's the only way often that I can meet other people. And so I'm very fortunate that my work does take me into foreign countries. And finally I can, you know, <laughs> be who I am and um, and realise that I'm not as bad as I think I am in my own head. So it's good when I get to travel. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about this as we go on, but I want to talk about your beginnings, so where you grew up. Now, you were born in Gundawindi, is that right? I, I'm from near Gundawindi, yeah. I'm 100 and, 120 kilometres northwest of Gundawindi. It's our closest town. I'm a full-on Queenslander. Yeah, really? You should never, you, it's, it's one of those things you should never ask someone if they're a Queenslander. If they are, they will tell you, and if they're not, you don't want to embarrass them. What do you think of when you think of a Queenslander? Absolutely awesome. For me, Queenslanders are the quintessential Australians. We, we are different. We've got a different system of government. We've got a different system of community. We're very different, especially like, you know, we're in Victoria now, and your whole population lives in Melbourne. You've got a few people out there somewhere in the bush. Maybe there's someone next to the Mallee Fowl, I don't know, collecting eggs. Someone's in Gippsland milking a cow. But uh, in Queensland, more of the population lives outside of the capital city. So we are very much so a different people. And that's what I love about Queensland, the kindness that you get from the general population. The idea that you've got to help people out is so ingrained in our culture. And also the fact that we love our state it's just so intense in all of us. And, you know, we also, the system of government that we have means that we have very long, stable governments for very long periods of time, which, you know, it's the opposite federally. You just, everyone gets a Guernsey. It's, it's one of those things. Queensland culture is very different and it's a culture that as soon as I'm back there, I feel at home. Like I do a lot of teaching of children now and a lot, I teach children a lot about our culture and about traditions that go back all those thousands of years and... I'm teaching kids in Sydney. Yeah. I'm teaching kids in Melbourne, but I'm having a conversation in Queensland with the children there. And that's what I love about Queensland is that we're still so well in touch with who we have been for a very long period of time. Whereas there's just a genuineness that comes from Queensland and that genuineness can often be seen not as authenticity, 
but as you know racism or bigotry and all this sort of stuff and uh it's it's sometimes it's more about being okay by saying something mm. and thinking that you're being devious if you don't because we all feel things i mean at, at the heart we all humans are tribalist mm. that's why we're having this conversation i'm a tribalist being a queenslander we all are it's it's naturally within our genes i feel that queenslanders are open and honest about it and i feel like a lot of other people are not can you tell me what your childhood was like then different totally and utterly different to i think 99 percent of the world i think in my travels around the world, I have more in common with Mongolian nomads than I do with people in my own country. Uh, so I, I grew up on, on a station, so 45,000 acres when I was first around. And then, of course, we grew up to about 100,000 acres. And it was really a case of not knowing that there was a world beyond my world. So we weren't in a cult, <laughs> but I didn't know that there was people beyond it. I mean, I remember when the nuns, because, you know, we have a bush school. It's just a, a little school in the middle of a, a bush block. And uh, there was 30 kids at the, the entire school. And we didn't know about anything. I mean, we had, we had Aboriginal kids and there was white kids there, but we didn't know the difference. And the only thing that I knew is, and this is what I was told, and you only know what you get told when you're a little kid and everything you take, literally, they were just longer in the oven. And that's all I, I knew. And, you know, the... We had staff on the farm that were Aboriginal, but I didn't know that they were different. And uh, I remember at school that we were watching a, a documentary and it was about Papua New Guinea because, of course, Papua New Guinea used to be a colony of Queensland and, uh, and subsequently Australia. And it only got independence in 1974 or five, I think, I can't remember. But we're watching a documentary on the New Guinea people and uh, at the end of it, Mrs Bogle turned off the television, turned the lights back on and she said, oh... You know, what do you see about some differences between them and us? And this kid put his hand up and he said, well, they're black and we're white. And he was an Aboriginal kid. So the thing is that we were just so innocent to the idea of the differences that we see in ourselves. We were all the same. We were just, we're all the kids from Mooney. And the only time that we really knew that we had differences is when we had to do religious education and the Catholics went one way and the Protestants went another way. And... We would talk amongst ourselves, what are the Catholics doing? And then, you know, it's like, oh, they eat people. You know, they drink, <laughs> they drink people's blood. And, but then we'd all get, after, yeah, after yeah, the religious yeah. class, we'd all get back together. This. And we're doing this, we're doing this, of course, under a tree. And they're under another tree on the other side of the school building. So it's just, it's hilarious. And that's why I say my life was so different because... Like, I'm seeing your face and you're like, what the hell, man? No, but We're the same age. <laughs> but it's exactly the same as what you, you first mentioned it as. I mean, it's very tribal. Do you like to feel like you're in a community? Yeah, absolutely. But if I don't feel safe, I'll do whatever I can to, to change that. You know, so I've lived in, in full blood Aboriginal communities. I've lived up in Wick country in Aracoon and... And yeah, you feel so safe. But yeah. then, of course, you there's one thing that you can bring into that community, like alcohol, and suddenly... You know, you're locked in your donga because someone's got an axe trying to get in. But then the next day, it's the alcohol's dried out and the friendship's back exactly where it was. And that's one of the, the peculiarities about rural Australia, be it, be it an Aboriginal community or a white community or, a, you know, now Tongan communities, which yeah. are, are probably springing up all over the, the place down here in Victoria. Just in, in those agricultural communities, there isn't always an underbelly. It, it is very much so a case of it's daylight and it's darkness. And, you know, we 
have a lot of problems and uh, I think as long as we're always honest about it, you know, you know, violence that occurs up there and, and my childhood was a very, very violent one, it's just the way it was and yet so much love at the same time. It's, it's a peculiarity and, uh, you know, you have so much freedom but then again you can be such a slave and it's all happening at the, the one time and that's the bizarre juxtaposition that creates us Queenslanders as being such especially rural Queenslanders, are being such people that seem to have such outlandish views. But then at the same time, if anyone gets to know a Queenslander, they're like, they're the most decent people, but then they say this stuff. It's like, well, that's because, you know, we grow up in this strange environment. Like, I was so free to run around my farm. But at the same time, when you're a little kid that's, you know, five and six years old that has to run home to the the homestead because you got left up the paddock, that's 22 or 23 kilometres, and you've got to run down a highway and there's that idea that someone's going to come and take you all the time because you're a little kid that's running by yourself. Of course, that would never happen in the city. You wouldn't have a little kid that would have to run 20 kilometres back home. (laughs) No, No. I don't think anyone's leaving their children (laughs) kilometres away from their home. With you, it always dawns on me that the saying, if these walls could talk, (laughs) because from what I know of you, you kind of drift in and out of places and you're on an exploration Mm. like nobody else I've ever come across. What would you say David was like then as a child? Totally and utterly innocent. It was it was a case of always survival. I mean, you know, uh, I was born in 79, so I grew up right through the 80s. So it was right in the middle of the Bjork-Peterson era where it was more like North Korea. You know, we'd all line up whenever yeah. a politician would come to an area. We'd all be in a dusty paddock and we'd all be in line and they would land their plane and they'd come out and inspect us all and we'd sing Advanced Australia Fair or, or God Save the Queen. And I preferred God Save the Queen because I could remember the words, the rest of them <laughs> I was just confused. Little Um, did you know you'd end up becoming quite familiar with Queens at some point in your life. (laughs) Maybe that's where it is. Maybe that's where it is. (laughs) Yeah. But no, uh, I think, yeah, just I was a very innocent and naive kid and uh, I had a thirst for knowledge, which was crazy for um for me i mean we the books we had in our house were religious books you know Mm. my my family is is quite religious like many rural families back then not so much now of course but um definitely back then very religious we rarely ever had television that would work because the bloody cockatoos would destroy the aerial every time we'd put it up and it had to be you know 30 meters up in the up in the air because we were down in a um a river valley so the books that we had in the house were Christian ones or they were encyclopedias. We had 1967 set of Encyclopedia Britannica and I read every single book a thousand times. And uh, that is what allowed me to know that there is a world that's outside of the station that I grew up in. Your curiosity mm. is what makes you in a way. I think that's your driving force is your curiosity. Absolutely, yeah. And Money is not my driving force, that's for sure. <laughs> so here I am, almost 40, and, you know, I don't have a, uh, a dollar to my name. Well, tell me about this relationship that you then had with your parents. And a lot of gay men have an affinity and have a closeness to their mothers. Did, yep. did that happen for you? Absolutely, absolutely. And I was the youngest of, of 11 children, so I have five brothers and five older sisters, so everyone's older, and I came along right at the end. So there was a hell of a lot of pressure on me because although I come from a, a, uh, a Scotch-Irish background, we have to succeed because we are, are built out of a culture of adversity. You're in the wrong spot sure, pretty much, and everyone around you wants you dead, so you have to succeed and do a lot of good stuff. Absolutely. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, I definitely came from that culture 
culture, even though it's only my dad's line, very much so it's that immigrant, you must do as best as you can because God uh, smiles on, on, uh, on the Protestant work ethic type thing. So work when nobody's watching and always have a smile on your face when they are and never, never complain about your, your lot in life. That's definitely the culture I was brought up in, but uh, there was a lot of, lot of love, but I was definitely brought up to take on the family farm. You know, my brothers were all farmed off by the time that I was coming along and they had their own farms that my dad had created for them. My sisters were getting married off, as, as you do in the culture, and uh, there was me that was going to be left with the farm and because, you know, my parents are quite elderly when I came along. For the, for the time, I mean, uh, Dad was almost 50 and, and Mum was 40. So there was a lot of pressure on the fact that I was going to take on, on the farm. And well before I went to school, I was, I was working, yeah, 12-hour days. So no matter how good I was at school, I'm going to take on the farm. So my dad actually resented when I did well at school. And that was always a, a major conflict in the household that I couldn't understand because... When I leave my farm, it's always, if you do well at school, you're, you're really good. The world rewards people who yeah. learn and yeah. use that knowledge to better themselves or to better our community. Whereas when I got back to the farm, my dad would be extraordinarily upset about if ever he saw me reading a book, if ever he saw me doing any academic work, and he would really um, humiliate me about uh, any academic success that I had. Has your dad ever said he loves you? Funnily enough, he did the night that I got out of Big Brother. Wow. Yeah. We're both emotional people, so you're, you say <laughs> that to me and I'm like, all right, it's okay. But he did. And so like, he did. He and that was down the line on the phone or was he there? No, he was, he was there. He was there and it was all oh. very bizarre. And um, uh, they were locked away in a room and so they didn't know what had gone on stage or anything like that. And, of course, we didn't have television at home, so my dad didn't see any of the show at all, had no concept of what was going on. But he did have a concept, of course, of how the community in our region was reacting to it all. And, uh, you know, I went... I, I wasn't out before I went on the show, and I um, I wasn't, as I say, Queenslanders are open and honest. I wasn't myself open and honest. And uh, that's the one time that he said it, so, yeah. How can you be open and honest in a community like that, though, where in lots of ways you are being suppressed... <laughs> And yeah. also, the one thing that people might not necessarily know about you is that you're an empath. Like, you're somebody who does want energy from other people and you want to do the right thing by them. Of course, yeah. And I think that that culmination really comes together when mm. it comes to your father because you are looking to make him happy. Yeah. But then you still have to be true to yourself. Absolutely. And you still have done that, which I think is what a lot of people probably would have just gone well, this is my lot in life. You know, I live on the farm and I'm yeah. going to get married and I can have kids. And I mean, you still have a quest for your own story, which is powerful. Well, there was only two options that we ever had. It was end it or, or get married and have kids and make this poor woman miserable because she would, she would, every partner knows if they're not right for you. So you're going to ruin her life. And of course, you're not going to be able to be the best dad because there's always this resentment within you as a male and so you see that you see you see these poor gay men that are forced into that situation and that's why most of the people in the bush used to just 
top themselves because that's what our culture expected of us and that's what we expected of ourselves. If you, like, you've got children... And so, how many kids have you got? I've got three. You have three children. Three gorgeous girls. They are. Is that because people, lim- women, look at you and they're like, "All righty, good stock." <laughs> no, it's a little bit more complicated than that. I actually met the first mother of my donor, two donor girls, and uh, I was doing a, I was emceeing an event for Open Doors, which is a wonderful organisation that helps young people get through life and stay alive. And uh, it was about ten, ten or. 12 years ago and uh, I was in the middle of doing a speech and I'm celebrating their first year of operation and how many kids that they'd saved and I'd done a lot of work with them and uh, then I saw this girl and I just said to her through the middle of my thing I want to have babies with you because I just felt it it was so powerful and then anyway afterwards when you know people come up and they say oh you know you did a great job or whatever she came up and she said oh did you mean what you said and I said yes I want to have babies with you and I said I'm so sorry that I said that and I can't believe I'm saying it again right now but anyway there we are after a lot of hiccups and a lot of dramas we uh the Proud shared parents of two beautiful girls who actually had uh, a, a week up in um, up on my farm, and they got to experience my country, and they got to uh, share in the absolute adoration and love, and everything that beats in my heart. They got to experience about uh, coming back to their country, and um, even though they're not my kids, um, you know they've got two beautiful mothers, and they're very much so a family unit. Gene um, speak and. Uh, and for me to have them come and swim in a billabong where people have been swimming for 20 or 30,000 years was so powerful for me. And it was just last week, so it was beautiful. That is so powerful. <laughs> what is, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but I have to ask this question. What is it like to be a gay man in 2018 and to be able to hold a child that is your own? What does that feel like? I don't know what that feels like. The most incredible thing ever. You hear it all the time. People say your life changes when you have kids. The moment, oh my God. And it's still to this day, like, I just became relaxed. It's like, it wasn't like I've done my job. And it was just like, it was like I'm now part of the chain. Whereas, you know, as, as a gay man, I always thought, well, I'm the end. I'm the end. There's, there's this genetic chain that goes back two million years and I've, I've ended it. Like, I'm a rotten seed. And I'm not going to perpetuate this incredible story. I'm, I'm the end. I'm the last chapter. And that is pretty, pretty soul-destroying. Well, it's fairly bleak. But at the same time, <laughs> I think for you in particular, it's, I think that it was inevitable that your, your roots, your vines, the mm. way that you are as a person yeah. weren't going to get entangled into this universe and that there was going to be a bigger purpose. You were never going to be that seed that was left to rot. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's just a part of who you are. So then, I cannot believe we went over this before, but is it 11? Are you a part of 11? Yeah, I'm the youngest of 11 So you're the youngest out of 11 children. What do they all think of you? I mean, what's the dynamic? Look, I wasn't, uh, you know, often people say the little one gets spoiled. That was definitely not the case. And because I had quite a lot of girls just above me, they're the ones that I interacted with. And, uh, yeah, look, I was, I was the punching bag for, for most of my family members. And, yeah, it was a pretty brutal, hideous childhood when it comes to looking back from a family point of view. It was a glorious childhood considering the country I lived in and the incredible freedom that I had to experience the bush and 
to exist off the land at times because sometimes it was a little bit too hard to be at home. So, you know, you have that uh, incredible inner resilience that was created out of that experience of having so many siblings that, that probably resented your existence. Where does that resentment come from? I think, uh, like, my dad created a very adversarial attitude amongst us children that we weren't all one. He would ensure that we competed against each other. And and, um, by the time I came along, you know, he'd done his dad duties. He was over it. (laughs) He'd done all the footy stuff with my brothers. By the time I came along, he was just like, right, you're going to work. And, you know, I was was operating 550 horsepower tractors at the age of six. You know, like that's what I was doing. And uh, there was no, from his point of view, reason that I needed to have... Uh, childhood it was mechanical like it was it felt yeah. like you he was going through the motions yeah training an instrument for a farm absolutely absolutely yeah when i look back it was very much so a a slave type situation i know that's a really harsh word and and those that are actual slaves to other humans might find that really offensive but when i look back that was the relationship I, i've seen both of your parents interviewed i've seen them both talk candidly about your childhood and they they weren't pretending it to be something different <laughs> yeah which yeah. i thought to them you know like that's and my hat's off to them in a way yeah because quite often you see people say oh no that never happened <laughs> when they know it did yeah yeah so i think in lots of ways they're owning it and that's the glorious thing about all of my family is that there is no shoving things so much under the rug which is what you do get a lot with um, people that have violent households What's happening with them now? Like, what's your relationship with them uh, at the moment? Well, I've, you know, as you say, I do have a very close relationship with my mum. She, um, she's everything to me. She's the, uh, up until three years ago, the only woman that I thought I'd ever really, truly love. But now that's, that's extended, which is so strange for me. But I love that I've got these three beautiful daughters. Isn't but, being yeah. surprised in the world the best thing in the world? You know, <laughs> when you go, oh, I always thought this was going to be that. It's such a beautiful thing to go, oh. Yeah, mm. when you make your own journey, it's up to you what what you do. And, and, and you know, that, that whole thing about there's only get married to a woman and have a terrible, terrible emotional life for everyone in your family or just kill yourself, which is the two options that I had. I very much so realised, which was the motivating factor, to be as political in a very strange way that I was going into the reality TV space. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it was very much so I learnt you can create your own path. And um, I'm glad I did because, you know, as I say, the, the two mothers and two of the girls uh, spent a week up at the farm with me and my dad loved them. He was running around playing an emu and because uh, emus, as you know, are brought up by their dads. And um, it was awesome. And... Uh, my mum absolutely adore these little girls as much as she and as equally as she does um, her hordes and hordes and hordes of grandchildren and great-grandchildren, of course. So, yeah, it, it's beautiful. And it's just a case of if you accept the reality that people tell you there is, that's all you have. But create your own options. And that's what I have done so much with my life is I don't agree with the status quo. You're going to push against it. I'm going to fucking push against it, but I'm going to when open up a fucking to. door and, yeah, it's for me. Of yeah. course it's for me. No yeah. one no one does anything without their own Absolutely. needs 
to be met. A lot of people work in the charity space. I constantly work in the charity space, but still it's because it's for your own needs to feel good about yourself and to feel that community sense that we humans innately have because we're a, a group creature. Um, we're a herd creature that always has to help each other. We're doing it for our own needs. But um, at the same time, it was like, I don't want a kid to go through what I went through out in the fucking bush and be that out in the bush or be that in the western suburbs of Sydney. If you feel isolated, you need to know that you're not alone. And well, being isolated is being isolated. Yeah, so exactly. It doesn't matter where it's happening. All children need to be loved yeah. and have a purpose. Yeah. And that's a great place to look for it. I think it's really clear that in lots of ways, the country life really got under your skin and that's who you are. It's who I am. It's, it's in every part of my DNA, yeah. I would love to know, though, because of the environment, because you're a masculine gay man. Like, that's how you come across do you think because of the pressures that came from your dad and the culture of that that's made you this way? Like, could you imagine if you were brought up in the city that maybe you could be more effeminate? No. No, I, I am who I am. And I've tried. I've tried to be as gay as I possibly can be. When? <laughs> I've wanted to do. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's just uh, at the end of the day, I'm not faking who I am. Like, yeah, you have. This is truly who you are. Yeah, this is, this is unfortunately, this is who I am and I can't change it. And as much as there are very, very effeminate gay men, there are very, very effeminate straight men. Oh, absolutely. You know? But and, I think um, that- it doesn't matter how your uh, personality uh, manifests itself out into the public. Sexuality, I feel, is totally unrelated. To gender, um, absolutely. I mean, people's gender and the way that they present themselves in their gender is so different to sexuality. But I was always curious, just because of your circumstance, being that I knew that you were around a very male-needs-to-be-male environment, whether that could be a driving force as to the way you've presented yourself. So taking sexuality (laughs) out of the equation altogether, I'm just talking about the pressures that were on you to present as a straight masculine male. I got a lot of mates that um, are from farms and they were brave enough not to take the weak uh, alternative of running you into a tree and um, they're very effeminate and <laughs> gay as Christmas. Um, so we come from the same culture. I've got a lot of mates that are Roman Catholic or Presbyterian and um, so they have that very extreme uh, religious, rural religious stuff put on them plus, of course, all the breeding attributes plus sure. the fact that, you know, you've got to take on the farm, you've got to breed, you've got to marry that neighbour down the road's daughter because, you know, they've got a really good boar. <laughs> You know, or, or... Sharon down the road's got a really good ball. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, all that stupid stuff that we do in the sticks, whatever. It's, um, it's as I say, there's more in common with a Mongolian nomad than there is with people in town. But, um, look, maybe I would be a, a different if I grew up somewhere else, but um, I'm just who I am as... Uh, and and I've travelled enough and been around enough to um to be pretty damn comfortable in my skin right now, so I don't feel that I have to put on any acts anymore. And um, when you get close to forty, you just uh, I don't know, it's just one of those things that you just start to after a while go, I don't really give a shit. Well, it's and not important. <laughs> it's not important. And and I luckily you know realise at quite a young age that um no matter what I do, I ain't going to change someone's opinion unless I am authentic. And that's what I've tried to do with my life. And 
as much as you know i've very much been a very very vocal political advocate to make people realize that you are not going to be hurt by allowing your gay child to be gay <laughs> get along mm. with their life what i've tried to do in the space is not run down the street with a placard and say you need to change uh, what i've done is i'm not changing and i'm showing anyone that would bother to to look out for me or to search me to show them that you know i'm just living my life i'm i'm a gay guy that just is farming and i'm doing my thing i'm not making a huge big deal about it every now and again yeah okay i get on the national media and jump up and down about something but largely what i've tried to do is instead of say look at me i'm gay and i'm proud and you should all change i just said hey i'm me and you can accept it or not accept it but i'm not going to change and i've got a story to tell never ever looked at it the way that I look at 99.9% of people that have been on reality television. I've never ever put the magnifying glass over you and gone, oh, that's because he was looking for a little bit more. Like, I always just see you authentically having a conversation about something and I'm all It is funny when people say that. They go, oh, yeah, you went on TV because you wanted fame. It's like, man, when I was 19, I was on billboards right throughout Europe, you know? I was walking on... Catwalks with Hugo Boss, like, you know, like I did all that shit way before and it was never for attention. It was just, that's the only way I could see the world. You know? Yeah, you wanted to go and travel the world. <laughs> yeah. That was your version of backpacking. Yeah. Was being paid as an international <laughs> model. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, look, I, I could never have left the farm any other way. And uh, What does dad think about you being a model on a billboard? Oh, he, when I, because I, I, my best mate and my girlfriend at the time, we had this plan to run away and see Sydney because for us, Sydney was the city of sickness and wrongness and everything that was wrong with the world was Sydney. You know, it was a cesspit. And we're like, do you really think it is? <laughs> Let's go and Let's have a look. Let's check it out. So it's we, we, we stole a car. And, uh, as we you went know, down the yellow brick road. Yeah, we drove to Sydney. We did it all in a single day. And then we got in in the middle of the night and we didn't know where to go or what to do. And... We were hungry, so we went to McDonald's because you know, it's freeway, freeway, freeway. Sure, we yeah, didn't know yeah. how to, we didn't eat or anything. <laughs> anyway, we got in at about two o'clock. The only place that was open was a McDonald's on George Street, and we were served by Asians who spoke in an Australian accent, and that blew our minds because we're these stupid Queenslanders. And <laughs> we were like, what the hell is going on? And then we went and parked somewhere, and there was rats running around. We're like, oh my god, it's a cesspit. This place is alien <laughs> forms, and. Uh, yeah, it was very, Everything very strange. Kind of- but yeah, I got picked up by, not picked up, but heaps of model scouts, which doesn't happen in real life. So there was three model scouts, right, that spoke to me as we were just exploring Sydney over the couple of days that we were running around and seeing what the city was all about. And then we were at Hyde Park where the, the fountain is. And my mate said, this is your ticket out, man. You can actually see the world. Wow. And, and I said, I'll well, do it. if it happens again, I'm going to do it. And without a word of a lie, that moment, this guy came up and this Italian chap and he said, I'm from Elite Models. And we're just there. My girlfriend, she fell over and she's like, what the? (laughs) This doesn't happen in real life. And so I'm like, well, I'd committed to it. And, you know, I was deeply Christian at the time. And so when you have a commitment like that, you've got to see it through. So I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then went back and signed all these papers on the day. And uh, and then they booked on my flights a week later. But I went home to um, see my parents and, of course... Before you go. Yeah, yeah, and return the car. <laughs> and they're like, 
what have you done? What have we raised? You know, it's because of this friends that you have from the city. And then I told them what I was doing. Of course, after my friends, I dropped them off back in the city and yeah, they yeah. driven back to uh, the farm. And I remember when I told my mum, she cried for the entire week. And she actually got some of my uncles, who was my uh, godfather as well, one of my uncles, to speak to me. And he'd done modelling and he'd done a lot of lot of TV commercials. And he was a bit fancy because he writes books and all this sort of stuff. And uh, he then talked to me about, you know, it's it's really the whole world is just about the, the modelling world. It's just a way to, to groom people for old gay men <laughs> so yeah that's my first conversation i've ever had about about gayness with anyone was was my uncle saying you know this this thing that you're doing it's it's just you're just becoming a you're going to become a gay they're going to drag you into yeah, the game but you don't in. you think that that probably comes from their fear because maybe they had assumed your sexuality before you told them no sadly no no, because my dad then, when I did tell my dad that I was going, I put my hand out to shake his hand and he spat in my face and said that I was a narcissist and um, I was a stain on my family. Sadly, uh, sadly, my parents didn't assume. And because a lot of people, you know, they have this wonderful story where they come out to their parents, and their parents are like, baby, I already knew, but thank you for being open and honest with me. And I'm so glad that, that you were able to do it in your own time. I tried to tell my mum... She wouldn't. Ex- she's just like, oh, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And I tried to tell her again. She's like, oh, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And so that went on for about six or eight months. And then yeah, I got bashed up pretty bad by a gang in Brisbane and uh, by by a gay hate ba- gang actually. Anyway, I left the pub and um, and these guys were throwing these bottles at uh, at these fellas. And they're like, oh, you fucking faggot, you fucking poofed uh. And I'm like, I'd had enough. The reason I was in Brisbane that night is because I'd been driving 11 days cultivating. And, you know, I do 20-odd hour days and I just camp in the cab of the tractor and I wake up and I drive again because you've got to get it all done with moisture and all this sort of stuff. You've really got to conserve your moisture and manage your moisture when you're doing a, a first till. Anyway, bloody, the whole time I'm on the tractor, you've got Bob Catter saying that the gays don't exist. And I'm... Well, I was at that time an Anglican. And, of course, the Anglican faith was being ripped apart by the fact that the Americans were uh, admitting gay bishops and gay priests. And, you know, the diocese here in Australia was like, oh, my God, this is so wrong. Mm. So from every angle, from my religious angle, from a political angle, and I used to be quite heavily involved in, in the National Party at the time. And I was just so peppered by all of this stuff and then a movie was being made about two gay farmers and then of course you've got all these people ringing in saying you know how disgusting how can they ruin our culture thinking that we would do something like that there's no such thing as gay farmers and i'm like motherfuckers so i got in my ute and drove to brisbane and then so i was over being told that i don't exist because i'd gotten to the point where i'm like you know i have to exist motherfuckers and don't can tell me that i need to go and drive yeah. my ute into a tree because i tried that and it didn't work so i'm not going to do it again anyway these they were throwing these beer bottles and i just went up to him and i said hey what the are you guys doing he's not gonna hurt you is he is he trying to reach you and they're like no but he's a faggot and um (laughs) and i just i just you know i was drunk as a skunk but i'd had a gut full i'd had a gut full of the world saying that 
there's something wrong with you because I know there's nothing wrong with me. Mm. And at the time I was religious, so I believed that God made me in his image and I had a right to exist like every other mother had a right. So I said to these guys, I, I just calmed them down and they were all cool. And you know what? They were all having a good old chat with me at the end of it. And um, people were walking out past them at, coming out of the pub and it was all very darkly street in Brisbane. The, there's car yards all next to the, the Wickham Hotel. And um, so it's quite dark and there's a lot of lot of trees. So it's pretty dark. But people were walking past. I'm like, see that guy there? He's not trying to hurt you. He's just trying to get to his car. Those two guys over there, they're probably going, so, you know what? That doesn't hurt you. That doesn't yeah, affect yeah. you. No one's, you're not going to get any spit. Yeah. It's not, not, your, not your mess to be involved in. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, man, you're pretty cool. And I said, not bad for a faggot. And then, he, and then the leader said to me, what do you mean? And then I said, I'm gay and I'm not hurting you, am I? And then that's when the and I got pelted from behind and got kicked and got smashed and they left me for dead, man. So, yeah. So, me standing up saying, don't be mean, I'm here. I actually did feel what it's like to get killed by others after I'd tried to do it myself. So, it was kind of like, we've got to stop hating ourselves. This is 2005, 2006 or whatever. And other people have got to stop hating us. And the only way to do it is to tell people hey you know what we're not just the hairdresser yeah we're not just the female footy player or the female cricketer i always say to people there's more lesbians than the ones that go to bunnings and there's more (laughs) gays than the guys that are jack from will and grace like yeah i have to ask if david walks into so like this is a bit of a strange question so david walks into this room at the age of 12 Uh what advice do you give david Breathe, baby. <laughs> it's going to be a long ride. <laughs> breathe, breathe in, breathe out, and repeat. Because what advice can you give to a young person? I mean, they have to live it. And I wouldn't change a thing. I wouldn't change a f***ing thing. And I wouldn't, you know, I used to always want a time machine and always want to go back and change certain mm. things. And But no, you've got to experience it. And, and if you don't go through the trials and tribulations, you don't have the inner strength to face the next one or the next one or the next one. Absolutely. So I wouldn't say a f- thing. I would just look and go, oh, you're a bit skinny. Eat, eat your steak and veggies, buddy. <laughs> I saw Do a, a few more push-ups. <laughs> I saw a photo of you the other day with the, the big smile and the big eyes, but just you on this small kid's body. And it was so, I was just like, wow. And that's the, that's, it's strange to even talk about it. But I have to ask then, are you happy? At this time? Uh, I'm definitely the happiest I've ever been, which is so extraordinary because I don't have any of the things that an Australian is supposed to have. I don't have a mortgage. I don't have a relationship. I don't have Christmas with my family. I don't have a nine-to-five job. I do not have superannuation. But what I do have is the most extraordinary life where I feel I've done my bit to make my community, be it my farming community, be it uh, my um, gay community, uh, be it my Australian community, a better place. And I feel like I've given back and my, my slate is clean. So I feel very content that I don't owe anyone anything anymore. I think it comes down to you're being your truest self mm. at this point, and maybe it's taken a while to get there. Yeah, well, you know, I've spent my time 
in monasteries in the Himalayas and uh, up in the up doing uh, dog sledding across the the North Pole and I've I've done a lot of things where the soul searching that often comes from other people's mm. directions like the Bible or the Quran or or whatever meditation fad is going around or vegan or paleo fad is going around I I don't have to follow those things simply because I have led a life that has exposed me to so many extremes of the human condition as well as the environment that that we humans haven't already manipulated so that i i just i really feel content and i don't need anything else it's a good place to be (laughs) it's such a good place and it's interesting you said that you wouldn't take anything back but both of us as we've mentioned um had been on reality tv same show and i've met a lot of those people along the way and they say that they regretted doing it where you're saying you've got no regrets. Would it was the best. I could never have come out to my family in any other way. Then uh, do uh, it on national television. Yeah, yeah, I mean, look, when you when you run of 11 kids, f- remember the Telstra bills back then? <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a lot of phone calls. So, no, I don't regret it. And Would you do it again now, though? Would you go back and... If they were to do an All-Stars Big Brother, would you go back and do it now? Um... It would it would be it would be a difficult one because I have so many dogs and they can't go into the show. They can't come into the show. They yeah. might put one. But the the reason why I ask you that question in particular though is I'd love to know your idea on what is the biggest differences between the David we saw at two thousand and six go into that program versus two thousand and eighteen. You know, what is what Australia would see that is vastly different. Well, I had a lot to say back then. I wanted not to change the world, but I wanted the world just to open their eyes a little bit. I wanted to get into the the lounge rooms of the two and a half, three million people, and I wanted them to just accept that they had certain values or they had certain morals and maybe, just maybe change them be it for the good or be it for the worse, but at least have that inner conversation with themselves and maybe with their family members as well, which... uh, Which they did. Which they did, and I'm probably the only person in Australia of the homo persuasion that thinks that in the same way the plebiscite was that same style of conversation that we had to have. And how does that... but? Do you know what's so interesting that you've made this point Mm. is that my biggest problem with the plebiscite is the stories and the people that I knew in regional areas Mm. that were affected. I had friends, I had a person that I knew from central Queensland that killed himself and that was that they ran a no campaign. They spent Mm. million dollars Mm. more Mm. on that, on the, on a no campaign, which killed people it put it like it was one of the worst things we will that effect of that plebiscite will happen for so long it's taken the band-aid off and 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 i know it sounds so rough but it took the band-aid off and it allowed us to heal the first uh capital punishment that was brought into australia was for sodomy like that was the first the first capital punishment, I mean, we don't have capital punishment, thank goodness, in Australia now. We don't have legalised, sanctioned government murder, but we did. And one of those things that you could be murdered by the government for was sodomy, for being gay. We needed to rip that Band-Aid off. And 
we can now walk down the street and know that a majority in our democracy, without question, say that we should exist and we should live. And it's no different to the 1967 referendum where are these fauna or are these people? And as terrible as it was, Australia said no. <laughs> the the, the uh, dozens and scores of nations that were here before the British arrived, they are people. They're not fauna, they're people. And they should be included like the rest of us. And I felt no different with the, the plebiscite. The plebiscite for me allowed me to look every single person in the eye that has ever said that I don't exist or that I don't belong, and I go, eat that cupcake up. Because you know what? Mm. Yeah. You don't get to say, say to me that I don't exist anymore. You don't get to say to me that Australia doesn't believe in me because this is a democracy. And a massive majority said, you know what? We've had a very long conversation about this. We've had every f***ing religious string pulled at our hearts. We've had every cultural string pulled at our hearts. And we've had every tradition because we're all told, oh, this is just a slippery slope. Despite all of that, Australia said, yeah, nah. Yeah, nah, they're okay. They should be treated equal. And for me, that just allows me to be so happy because there is no question anymore. You can never have a person say, oh, well, the politicians just did it because the gays run the show or the gays run the media or the gays are on the parliament or the gays are all the, the, the mafia. That No one can ever say that. It's done and it is dusted and it is finished with. We can never bring this issue up again. It's, it's one of those things that was the most painful for me, living in the bush <laughs> was yeah. the most painful thing yeah. because, remember, we say what we feel. <laughs> yeah, The Queensland bush, you say it. And I had people all the time saying, you know, Dave, I, I love you, mate, but it's all them other ones and what are they going to make us do next? You know, not every – they're not all like you, mate. And it's like when you go back to your um, uh, post office and you get that vote, mm. just ask yourself this one question – Am I as equal as you? And if you say I'm not, then write no. But if you think that I am, don't don't think about the people that imagine you imagine exist, like the Christian lobby imagined that there's all these evil gays out there that are just trying to make us all start to make love with rabbits and um, marry the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Marry the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Just answer that question with the people that you know. And should everyone be treated equally in this country? And if the answer is yes, then f***ing say yes. If the answer is no, then say no. But live with it for the rest of your f***ing life. And I'd say that to every Absolutely. <laughs> look, I'm not saying... Do you know what's so interesting about you, David, though, is that I, I know that you are quite political in the sense that uh, you've been quite involved with the National Party mm. and you have a voice, mm. you have an opinion... Mm. And they are your own and you back it, mm. which is very rare amongst politicians, I believe, in the culture of politicians right now. Mm. Is politics something that you've put to bed? I've given it a kip. And the reason I gave it a, a good long kip was uh, the most attacked I got was from urban gay people. Yeah. What's happening with the nationals? Um, so I'm totally not involved at all and, and is there a uh, story to go with the reason why you're not involved because that's what i want to know oh yeah the the religious right did everything they possibly could to kick me out 
which which you know there's now there's a lot there's a lot of gay people in the national party now and openly gay and it, it's a very broad mm. spectrum but then at the same time how yeah. do you get headlines you've got to say ridiculous things and not all those politicians believe in what they say but you need to get airtime because if you don't get airtime you don't get elected that's just the way democracy works. You need to have as many people as possible listening mm. to what you have to say because hopefully some of those people will end up going, that resonates with me, I'll vote for that person. That's the tragedy of democracy is that you've got to say ridiculous things to get the media to get your message out there. Otherwise, you know, it's just a case of how else are you going to do it? I mean, Donald Trump, hello, you know. What about Barnaby Joyce? Because he was a big supporter of yours at one Definitely point. Definitely was an amazing supporter and, and spoke very graciously for my Australian story and top bloke. What happened to him? <laughs> he's at the slippery slope. Well, he's a hypocrite. He's a hypocrite. And and that's why I don't have religion for me personally anymore because you, I have a huge issue with people that, that live their lives pe- cherry-picking and pointing fingers. And the whole idea of Christianity, which what is what drew me to it in such an extreme way when I was young, was the idea that you should treat everyone kindly and always find your own faults before you even bother picking out anyone else's and uh unfortunately um the christians we have today are as far removed from the teachings of their leader as you could possibly get i mean the whole teachings of of jesus are very very much so uh turn the other cheek and these guys are warmongers saying i'm a christian soldier it's like you can't that's not what he was about uh he was about saying you know if someone's downtrodden you lift them up if someone's poor give them your cash uh a a camel has 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 more ability to get through the eye of a needle than a rich man into heaven and yet all these christians are all about the cash and the money and uh turning away asylum seekers and and um economic migrants it's just bizarre we've all got to i think get to that point where you know, we've just got to be okay in our own skin and stop fueling and ripping apart other people and just be like, well, that person just said that. I agree with that. Well, I think it's living outside our own circumstance is the biggest thing that's a problem in, from where I'm sitting. Oh, the bubble. Where it's like, <laughs> yeah. I'm living in this privileged white man's land. Yeah. You know, and we see it in smaller communities. We see it in the LGBTI community. There's yeah. white gay men who are extremely privileged, yeah. not sending, like, not putting some light over other factors, facets, you yeah. know, of the community. So, look, these are problems that we obviously need to have. You know, uh, what is happening for you at the moment? What's going on? What? So, I spend all the Christmas holidays and all the, the major public holidays teaching kids about food, fibre and fuel and where... Um, where it all comes from and how we can actually be a sustainable people and just connecting those kids to their country and getting them to understand. I mean, they, they get to hold um, uh, grinding wheels that um, come from, from my land and my country that have been used for tens of thousands of years. Sure. And we grind up some damper, we make some damper, we talk some Dreamtime stories. I get them to understand that our culture goes on well beyond um, the arrival of the First Fleet yeah. and um, or well beyond the arrival of their parents or even themselves. Um, our history goes back and we need to embrace it and don't you own lo- it. Don't you love looking at kids when you're giving them information, when you can see them being a sponge? Cause it like- scares the out of me how easy it is yeah. to be a terrible Roman Catholic priest <laughs> and or uh, any pedophile because, you know, I, w- I went to the... I went to that that uh, Anglican school where the Governor-General lost his job over all the pedophilia that was happening. Mm. 
it is so easy. They just love you. And when you share with something with them and you're honest with them, they just adore you. It is so easy to be a horrid human being. But how you could be a horrid human being to a child, I cannot comprehend. Have you got a message for the queer community that would be listening to this right now? Live your own life. Live your own life. If you're in Altona, if you're in Ipswich, if if you're in Kawanyama, live your own life. No one has the right to tell you how to live your life. And as long as you don't hurt anyone, you're doing it right. Well, Farmer Dave, (laughs) David Graham, (laughs) thank you for giving me the most amount of explanatives, you know, in a chat so far. Thank you so much for taking the time and being so generous with your time and coming in. Thank you. Thank you for telling the stories that you tell, Ben. And I listen to your podcasts as I travel right around Australia and... They are so insightful, and what you are doing for all of us is brilliant because the more stories we share, uh, the more open we become, and the more okay we are with each other. So, thank you. Amazing. We are done. Word for Word is presented and produced by Ben Norris from Australia's LGBTI radio station, Joy. Word for Word is distributed nationally to over 70 radio stations across the community radio network. This podcast was produced by Joy Media. You can support Joy's diverse sound and diverse community this June by donating to Joy Radiothon 2024. Go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. And remember, we all flourish with joy. Joy.